Welcome to Category 5 Technology TV. This is episode number 536. So great to have you here. We've got a fun and jam-packed show planned for you tonight. First of all, we are going to be talking about uh, our 4K cameras. We're on the second one of the set. Uh, we have got um, some information for you about data storage, CDRs, DVDRs, what you need to know if you've got some of your old family photos archived on those. Uh, we've got another episode of our biggest fans on YouTube, and we're looking forward to hearing from them. And ultimately, we're going to be looking at the GNU Image Manipulation Program. Think free version of Adobe Photoshop. So stick around. We're going to show you how you can get that and uh, how you can use it. Some of the basics. Perfect. Mm. And here's what's coming up in the Category 5.TV newsroom. The surveillance camera network in the U.S. Capitol was hijacked by Romanian ransomware and charges have been filed against the pair that were arrested abroad. Nissan Canada's vehicle financing wing has been hacked, putting personal information on more than a million customers into the hands of miscreants. Tesla's Elon Musk has pledged to make a pickup truck as part of its future plans for the electric vehicle maker. Talk of long-range wireless charging has been around for some time, but we've yet to see a product that can charge devices from relatively long distances. Thanks to startup Energis, however, room-scale charging will soon be a reality and available to everyone. And Apple has changed the rules around how games on its app store will be using loot boxes. Stick around. The full details are coming up later in the show. This is Category 5 Technology TV. trusted only to solid-state drives by Kingston Technology. Revive your computer with improved performance and reliability over traditional hard drives with Kingston SSDs. Category 5 TV streams live with Telestream Wirecast and Nimble Streamer. Tune in every week on Roku, Kodi, and other HLS video players. For local showtimes, visit Category5.tv. Category5.tv is a member of the Tech Podcast Network. If it's tech, it's here. Cat5.tv slash TPN and the International Association of Internet Broadcasters. Cat5.tv slash IAIB. Well, each week over the course of four weeks, we are featuring a new 4K camera. Now, last week's show, episode number 535, we featured the FDR AX53. Uh, that is from Sony. Now, this week, we've got a different camera altogether. This is, so what you're seeing here on our A-cam is the Panasonic. This is a similar price point, a 4K camera that is kind of, high-end consumer. It's the HCWXF991. So um, this is um, streaming out over 4K HDMI into a Magewell capture card. Our card is the uh, HC, uh, pardon me, it's the, do, 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 do. I made notes just so that I can help you just in case you are looking at it. Uh, it's a big long thing. XI100DE-HDMI-4K, that's from Magewell. Great little PCI Express card. Uh, and then that goes into Telestream Wirecast 8.2. So that's kind of our specifications. If you are planning to do some broadcasting yourself, uh, if, you, if you want to broadcast church services, or your own podcast um, and include uh, 4K HD video, um, this is your opportunity to kind of see how some of these um, 
economically minded cameras um, kind of fare as far as live broadcasting environments. I find that a lot of the reviews that are online are, you know, panoramas, outdoors, and close-ups of ducks and things like that. Those things are great, but it's not what we're shooting here in studio. So we wanted to do a feature with four different 4K cameras so that you can see what it looks like under proper lighting and and that kind of stuff. And we're really controlled, right? Like every every week we do the show in the same area and everything. Exactly. It's a good compare and contrast. And if you're wondering why we're not using green screen and some people have commented oh your your logo is too low and too small well the fact is is that this is usually a sit down set when the green screen isn't there um, so we've removed the green screen simply for the fact that now you can see um, basically one to one comparisons of all four cameras exactly so the Panasonic is tonight uh, that's cool now I do have tonight so just to be straight up with you uh, I've got my laptop screen so that I can bring that up and I do have an overhead camera now this camera is not the Panasonic so when you see this shot just so you know that is in fact a D5100 that's usually our a cam so that's uh, a Nikon DSLR going out over HDMI it's a 1080p camera so why we have the 4K camera, uh, even though we are a 1080p broadcast, is because while we can use this nice wide shot like this, we can also punch in nice and close like that. And as you can see, unlike a 1080p source when we zoom in, um, even though that's digital zoom, it's crystal clear. Right. Now, pretty impressed with the, f- uh, the 4K output from the, uh, the Panasonic so far. It looks uh, pretty clean. Uh, so you'll have to say, you know, gauge between the four cameras and see how they look. So that's the purpose of that. We can zoom around, we can move around within that canvas, and we don't need multiple cameras in order to do that. Right. It's far far less exciting for me than last year at this time when we were comparing the four right. cameras. Because we had them all on, on one rig. <laughs> and um, we went out in, like in downtown Barrie by the lake, and it was like super frozen. And it was a cold, blustery camera comparison. It would be the same if we were to do that. A far warmer. Now, you'll (laughs) notice that our shot has a big wide open area here, and that's because Jeff... Uh, he is still doing the Christmas shenanigans with his family and couldn't make it back to the studio tonight. Yeah. Um, so I decided, rather than pulling in tight to Sasha and I um, with, the, with the shot itself, I wanted to leave this nice wide shot so that you can really get a feel. So when I zoom in, this is still, this is a 200% zoom. When we have both of us side by side like that, that is yeah. 150% of the canvas. So, all right. Cool. We've got a fun show for you tonight. Uh, We've got a couple of things that I wanted to talk about before we really get into our feature, which is learning how to use the GNU image manipulation program. We're getting into kind of the basics. Uh, For those of you who have never heard of or possibly used uh, the GIMP is what it's called in short form, GNU image manipulation program. We're going to get into that in just a couple of minutes time. Uh, We had um, somebody come into my office with a CD with their family photos. And right. it, it really raised something for me that I wanted to share on the show uh, because the reason that they came to us is the photos were not readable on the disc. Right. And she basically said, I thought by putting them on a CD and keeping that CD in a safe place, that this would be a permanent archive of my family photos. And by a safe place, like it was in a CD case, stored somewhere dust-free. Absolutely. I can see where she's going with that. I would think that. Right. So a CD, understand how a CDR 
versus a printed like professional CD works. So we think about a CD and we hear, you know, if you buy off of, um, you know, from a record store, say, yeah. if they still exist in some places um, obscurely in the world. I know they are out there and you can buy them on Amazon still. Um, but these discs are professionally printed and it's a completely different process. So you hear that, hey, these will last for 100 years. Right. A DVD is meant to last for 100 years. Well, because those are printed in a different way. They're, okay. not, they're not printed using lasers. So a CD has multiple layers. A DVD, same thing. Blu-ray, same thing. Right. It's got a layer of plastic and then a very thin layer of metal. Okay. Then another layer of plastic and, you know, to, to very greatly simplify that. So... Which is good. The ones that last 100 years, these uh-huh. are ones that are professionally printed. They have a layer of plastic and they have a layer of metal that has been stamped. Okay. Think of the old records. Then the right. You know, it's been done that way. Now CDRs are a great kind of thing. They're kind of ob- obsolete these days, and most of us don't even have optical media on our computers anymore. Uh, a lot of us don't. Um, but we tend to have used them for for data storage and things like that. So the difference is is that a CDR, CDRW disc, or DVDR, DVDRW has. Uh, the plastic layer, a metal layer, very, right. very thin film, and plastic layer. And then it uses a laser to move around the disc and create those etchings that wouldn't normally be printed. Right, So, but it actually physically changes the metal, it right? It changes it to uh, bumps and valleys, just like an old record right. player, right? Okay. So then as the so laser then- is reading it, it measures those bumps and valleys and turns them into zeros and ones, digital data, and then you've got your data reassembled. Okay. okay. So... Because of the nature of the CDR media, the do-it-yourself media, those are not archivable media. I can imagine, and I don't know, like I might be reaching here, but in my Mm -hmm. mind I'm thinking the reason why you're saying that it's not really great for storage, is it because of the fact that it's just, it, the metal might just shrink just and contract its and yep. like it might just, yep. it just relaxes over time and is yeah. not so in, etched? And in this case, um, it was in a safe place, yeah. which was a storage locker. So with, it, it did be temperature fluctuations. Yeah, temperature fluctuations caused the metal to do change a shape thing. and yeah, do all that. So then the data itself is essentially wiped from that disc because it goes back into its blank state in, in a manner of speaking. So the data with optical media, it's, it's practically impossible to get the data off. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I just wanted to kind of let you know this so that if you've ever archived things to optical media, and you know, I've been guilty of it too. I burn family videos to a disc. Thankfully, I have backups on my server and you right. know, I have that, uh, that infrastructure uh, at my home, but you may not. And so, you know, placing things on a disc, is it really safe? I'm going to tell you right now that it probably is not. So if you have some of those old archive discs, grab it, put it in your computer, make sure it can still read and start copying. If it will not copy, if you're having trouble reading those old discs, uh, then let us know. Send us an email. Go to our website, category5.tv, and uh, click on contact us and send us a question for the show. Because there are ways to do some analysis on the disc itself and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully be able to recover your data. But uh, it is just the nature of the media. So just wanted to bring that up for you because I know a lot of people trust that it is a permanent storage solution. So I probably would. 
Like I probably like I have I haven't and I didn't, mm-hmm. but I probably would. That's just who I am. Sure. We luckily have we have some external hard drives that we use for backup, mm-hmm. which is great. <laughs> um, as long but- as you have two copies or more, right? At every any given time. And that, it's kind of hard to remember to do it. Because some be people honest. will even say, I've got a backup on my external hard drive. And then you realize, it's, well, if you drop that hard drive, you call it a backup. But is there a copy on your computer? No. Yeah. I, needed, I needed the space. So I moved all the files onto the external hard drive. Well, that's not a backup. Right. And we, we've covered this on the show before, I know. But, um, but it's important to you know, ingrain this in our heads so that we know this I had this conversation with a girl who I work with and Mm -hmm. she just bought a new phone and she's like well I need to move my photos from my old phone to my new phone so I can have them and I was like is your phone the only place you have your photos she's like yeah I was like, <laughs> "That's bad." You need to watch the show. <laughs> yeah, and that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna move on, okay. but that's you know you know what I'm gonna say yeah. with that one. Yeah. But for now, it's time to check in with our biggest fans on YouTube. You know who you are, you big fans, you. Our biggest fans on YouTube, we know who they are because... They comment. They comment on our videos. And one particular video that has been surmounting a massive amount of our our biggest fans on YouTube commenting is our comparison of the uh, the Odroid XU4 to the Raspberry Pi 3 as far as calling it... A Raspberry Pi killer. Yeah. We talked, about, we talked about <laughs> no, this. It's tongue-in-cheek, but it has really brought out of the woodwork some of our biggest fans. Jeremiah C. says, I just got dumb watching this. Mm. Not a pie killer. It's huge and expense. Not a mini PC because it's huge and weak. And expense. <laughs> but to be fair, it's not huge. Okay. I want to show you, this yes. This is the Odroid XU4 that we built on that. Which is awesome. The Odroid XU4 is the circuit board here. This is the case that I put it in. Yes. With the backplane and with everything else. Now, I want to show you my Raspberry Pi case. This, this is my Raspberry Pi. Oh, it's so small. It's actually <laughs> a lot bigger than the Odroid XU4. And my point is that the case has nothing to do with it. Right. Oh my goodness, that thing weighs about 200 pounds. Ah. And you think the Odroid XU4 is big? Let's see how this actually uh, how this actually boils down. This is a Raspberry Pi 3. Okay. Here is my Odroid XU4 that you are saying is honking huge and hey, outside of the case, sure it is. Let's take a look at the XU4 from Odroid. going to disconnect it from my case here because we don't need the case right now. There we go. Not about the case. There's the board. I've got the mounting stuff on there. But let's take a look at the board's comparison. Oh yeah. That's the same. Yeah. The Raspberry Pi 3 is in fact bigger than the Odroid XU4. Can you see that? Just slightly. But 
if we were to compare, technically, the boards are very, very similar as far as their form factor. Don't be thrown off by this. Don't be thrown off by that. Now, what's different about this one is it is the Q. This is the XU4Q, which comes with a giant heat sink, and that is to keep it cool without the need of a fan on the board. This is the heat sink that I have on my Raspberry Pi 3, comparatively much, much smaller, but we're looking at, you know, this is an 8-core, 2-processor computer. Right. This is a Raspberry Pi 3, so it has a lot less power. It doesn't get quite as hot, so you don't need quite as much cooling as far as the heat sink goes. Nice. Ready for another one? Mike Hill says, did not make it past the first segment. Look at that big heat sink. Know what that means? No fan. Then pulls a fan out of the kit. Refer yeah. to subject A, yeah. my Raspberry Pi case. And to be fair, my actual Raspberry Pi case has a fan. This is for my Raspberry Pi 3. Mm -hmm. It's got a little fan. Sasha, your... Uh, mine, mine has a fan. Your, your Raspberry Pi is a retro Pi. Yeah. has a fan. It has a fan. The XU4 board, just like the Raspberry Pi 3, uh, this is the XU4Q, so it does not have a fan. If I'd like to put it in a case that has a fan, I can do that in the, in the uh, case of this unit here, the Cloud Shell 2. The reason for adding a fan is to keep the drives cool uh, because they can get a little bit warm. But to be honest, because the XU4 triggers the fan when it senses the heat, right. I've never had it turn on because I'm using SSDs, so it doesn't actually... Turn on Turn the fan. On. Yeah. yeah, which is disappointing in a way because I bought the one with the LEDs to look cool. Just to look cool. All right, next one. Ion Sewell. Okay, first you was bragging about how quiet it was with the heatsink. Then you pull a huge fan out of the box. Um, okay. Sorry, I didn't watch the whole video, so I don't really know how quiet it actually is. But when the ever-famous will be back after this commercial break was murdered, I was out. Huh. We talked about the fan. That's part yeah. of the chassis. The case has nothing to do with the circuit itself. The XU4Q. That's cool. That's all right. Nobody else made that mistake, I'm sure. No. no. Everybody else watched right through to completion. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Sean Harding says, It amazes me how all these new Tinker boards all say the same thing. The Raspberry Pi killer. If the Raspberry Pi 3 is so wimpy, why be threatened by it? Why even compare, idiots? Thank you for your constructive criticism. Appreciate that, Sean. Sean. Very much. You spell your name weird. What? Scene? Scene. Yeah, I could have called him Seen. Seen. Sean is, Sean is spelled S-E-A-N pretty, pretty normally. I just There's wanted a few to different spellings for counter critique. It. She just was looking for a way. I'm counter critiquing, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Alejandro Morales. Sue. The guy in the middle talks all the time, and the other two people are there for dot, 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 decoration. To which I say thank you. I will take that completely as a compliment. What about me? I'm here to... You compliment the other two? I'm here to decorate. And I'm just the guy who talks? That's right. I just sleep all the time. That was from another comment back then. Oh, yes, yes. yes. One of our other biggest fans on YouTube. Yeah. Gonzo says, Ugh, what the actual... LOL, this is crazy, overly weirdly done production. 
again, thank you. <laughs> thank you. We were going for crazy. Crazy. Overly we crazy. weirdly done. It's exactly we what we're going it. for. Hey, I, we love our community. We love having you a part of it. And you know what? Keep it. Keep it going. Keep commenting. Keep sending your constructive criticism because we take it to heart. That's right. We're going to be right back. Uh, we've got a great show for you. We've got uh, the GIMP, GNU Image Manipulation Program we're going to be taking a look at in just a couple of moments' time. Stick around. We'll be back. Jeff Weston, Yaman. you're building a brand new beautiful website. What? Aren't you? No. Am I? Oh, you're a terrible actor. What? This is where acting comes into play. Oh, I didn't know we were acting. You're supposed to act. Okay, fair enough. Right. Yeah, I'm building a really cool website. Are you building a really cool website? Just because Jeff is confused doesn't mean you have to be. Visit cat5.tv slash dreamhost to sign up for unlimited web hosting for your website with unlimited email accounts, MySQL databases, the latest version of PHP, WordPress, and more, and even a free domain name registration. It's less than $6 per month, so sign up today. cat5.tv slash dreamhost. Welcome back. This is Category 5 Technology TV, and our website is Category5.tv. We hope you'll join us there. Sasha, you had a question that was coming in during the break there? Yes. Albuquerque Turkey wants to know... Hey, Albuquerque Turkey. Um, the Pie Killer has one... Is it the SATA? The Pie Killer. The Pie Killer has one SATA point. It could be port, SATA. It could oh, be SATA. It could be SATA. Okay. It has one of those, but there yes. are two hard drives in it. So how do they do that? Two. Can it run yeah, more than two drives? Ah. Okay. That's it. I sense the question. Was, yes. It was a statement with a question inside of it. Exactly. Yes. Okay. The XU4Q, which is the board that I'm holding in my hand right here, uh, this has no SATA. Okay. This has EMMC for an EMMC hard drive. It has micro SD for a micro SD card if you want to go that route and a switch that allows you to select between them now what's different in our environment it is is it does have USB 3 and this particular USB 3 now remember that the Raspberry Pi only has USB 2 so this is not something that you can do on a Raspberry Pi 2 USB 3 um, has what's called UAS USB attached SCSI and it is significantly faster than a USB 3 external hard drive, for example. Basically, all, pretty much native speed of like a, an SATA bus. So the way that it works, and you can refer back to the original video, but this case has a backplane which has a USB 3 cable and that cable goes into the Odroid XU4. Now that goes into the backplane, it plugs in at the front here and it gives you two um, SATA headers and these are actually SATA headers and that's how it's able to do it. So it's UAS, um, USB attached SCSI to SATA, and the headers are SATA, so you can plug in just a standard hard drive. And that is because the Odroid XU4 has USB 3 that that's possible. Mm -hmm. So 
theoretically, any board that has USB 3.0 and has UAS compatibility can have a UAS backplane or UAS um, drives plugged into it. So SATA uh, bridge to convert to SATA. Cool. So that's how we do it. That's right. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Albuquerque Jerry. Thank you very much for the question. Um, quickly, pa- our Patreon page, as you know, has been revamped. Thank you to everyone who has updated their pledge. We are now a monthly um, supported show, a right. monthly supported network. So what you were giving before, if you're already a patron, has now been converted to monthly, but the dollar amount has not changed. So if you were giving... 25 cents per week, right. which would equate to a dollar, dollar twenty-five a month. Uh, now it's only 25 cents a month. So as you can right. imagine, it's really important that everybody quickly go and update their pledge. And we appreciate those who have done it. If you haven't done it yet, please do. Um, it's very, very simple. You can just go on to patreon.com, update your pledge for Category 5 TV. and It also means it gives us more breathing room, too, because if oh. you were... if if you were pledging per episode, then we would probably be cognizant of the fact that you're pledging per episode and maybe not post as much, perhaps, in a month as we could well, I, potentially I post. like weekly. Yeah. Right. But we could... I'm not saying that we're going to every week, but we could do more now, knowing that... And we do. We're, yes, exactly. We do. We, we're posting a lot of stuff, and I've got my vlog. Yeah, your vlog is, is cool. pretty fun. So you, you get a chance to see kind of behind the scenes. Uh, posted one just before we went live. I interrupted Sasha. If you're a patron, you already know about that. Um, so really cool way to support the show. Please check it out. Um, go to patreon.com slash category5. Um, we are giving away copies of Dead Effect 2 VR, awesome video game. Mm-hmm. It's a first-person virtual reality game that's available on Steam. And uh, you can actually pick up a copy absolutely free. Sasha, you want to tell them how they can qualify? Yes, email us. Just email us. That's tell it. us how you're watching, where you're watching from, how you're actually watching. You email contest at category5.tv. And that is how you enter the draw. We are accumulating the ballots over the holiday season, and then we're going to be doing more draws uh, in the new year. That's right. So good luck, and congratulations to our previous winners. Okay. Tonight we're looking at a program called the GNU Image Manipulation Program. Its short form is called The GIMP, and you can find out more about it at GIMP.org, G-I-M-P. And what is cool about this? Okay, you've all heard of Adobe Photoshop. Correct. And it's pricey. It can cost a lot of money if you want to do some image editing. Um, We've all used Microsoft Paint. We've all used, you know, whatever is at our disposal to do basic image manipulation. Well, the GIMP is very, very good. It's like a professional image editing suite, but it is available for how much money? For zero dollars. Zero dollars. How's that for an infomercial? (laughs) We're selling it tonight. We're giving it away for free for all time. They've been doing this for 20 plus years, and, uh, and it has evolved, obviously, in that amount of time to a full suite. It's fantastic. Right. But it's hard to get our feet wet. It's hard to jump into a new program. It always is. Yes. Uh, so tonight, we're going to show you some of the very most basics just to get you started using the GNU image manipulation program. Well, you know that we are Linux lovers, and so you're thinking to yourself, uh, I don't have Linux, and you know, do I have to install Linux in order to get the GIMP? Yes. Yes, you do. No, you don't. <laughs> I'd like to say yes, and please do, and, and we would encourage you to try Linux. But the GIMP is available for Windows, Mac, and Linux. Absolutely free. Okay? So, 
And truth be told, if you're nervous about Linux, which you shouldn't be because it's amazing, but if you're nervous about it, perhaps since starting with something like GIMP could get you thinking, oh, wait, there is there are programs available. You start to see right? the alternatives you, yeah. that are out there you just, and realize, hey, LibreOffice is actually a really good word processor, an Excel-compatible Excel spreadsheet program, and, right. and the GIMP is a really great image editor. So, um, just yeah, definitely a good chance. <laughs> Boom. All right. So let's check it out. I'm going to bring it up on my screen. That is the GNU Image Manipulation Program. I've got a, just a picture that I've loaded up there. And there's a couple things that I can see that is wrong with that picture. Uh, first of all, we can see that it is, it's been taken with the camera kind of, wow, it's crooked. It's sideways. It's whatever. Uh, I want to fix the orientation of that image. So that's one of the first things that we're going to do. So uh, let's get into it. All I need to do to familiarize myself with the GNU image manipulation program is get used to the right click and the left click working together for us. So you'll see, you know, there are menus up here and all that kind of stuff. And there are tools over here that are very, very helpful. Um, but a lot of the stuff that we need to do is done just by right clicking on the image and then we can find what we're looking for. Now I am using what's called single window mode just to give you a nice kind of experience out of the gate. And that is turned on by clicking on windows and then single window mode. And I'm using GIMP 2.8. There is a newer version that's available in beta. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd encourage you to use what's stable as you get into it as you get started. Okay, so simply right-clicking on the image and then going to image and then transform, I'm going to see a couple of things that are, I'm going to commonly use. I'm going to use these quite often. Um, so it's important to familiarize yourself with where are you going to find these things. So right-clicking and image is where you're going to find a fair bit of the things that we're going to look at tonight. First of all, I want to change the orientation because it is, it's vertical for some reason. So transform and all I need to do is I need to rotate it 90 degrees clockwise and there's my image. So as simple as that, it's done and done. Now if three times the other way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now if I press one on my keyboard, it zooms way in. What that does is it shows me the image in its full resolution. So that's the actual picture. You can see that it's pretty high resolution. Well, Robbie, how high of a resolution is this image? Traditionally, it can sometimes be tough to figure that out. Well, if you look at the GIMP interface right up at the top here, it actually always shows you right on the uh, on the t uh, title bar. So this one is 3436 by 1933. So it's good high resolution. Um, my 1080p monitor is 1920 by 1080. So if I want to use this as my desktop wallpaper, I need to get familiar with what's called cropping. Now we're going to look at resizing tonight too, but if I were to take this image and I was to resize it, watch that castle in the background there. If I took that and I go 1920 by 1080, now it is proportional. That's a fluke. That's fantastic. But if I did that and then hit scale, now the image has been scaled down to 1920 by 1080. This is just a fluke that it happened to be 16 over 9, just like my monitor. But you'll see, whoa, the castle's really, really tiny in the background there. I don't really need to focus on these cars over here. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to do what's called cropping. I do want that uh, 1920 by 1080 resolution, but I want to um, focus on, in on the castle. We're not going to zoom in on it because then it's going to get all grainy. Do you see that? I'm not sure how well that translates, but it starts to get really grainy if we were to zoom in. Right. See? Yeah. So if I go back to one to see it at full size, and then I right click and I go image canvas size instead of okay. uh, image scaling. I'm going to now set my width to 1920 and my height. See how it's, 
it's done that. Right. I can drag around, but now it's it's this weird, mm-hmm. it's this weird shape. If I zoom out a bit, <laughs> see that? Yeah. So instead, I'm gonna go canvas size 1920 by 1080 is my resolution of my screen and that is 1080p so it's created this little box here to show me what I'm actually going to be cropping into so I can move the image around and I can put the focus on the the castle on the hill there is a castle that is intuitive Mm because I would need that there you go I love that feature that's (laughs) something that I find Photoshop is really uh, lacking in is that canvas kind of cropping tool Mm -hmm. I really love the ability to to move around on that canvas figure out where I want it and then hit resize remember I'm not actually rescaling see the canvas is actually see that dotted line Mm -hmm. that's the original image size okay but now I've cropped it to exactly 1920 by 1080 the cars that are along this dirt area here are gone but the focus is now on this the castle yeah no one wants to see the cars yeah so there you go. So this is now 1920. Look up at the top. 1920 by 1080. Well, let's say we have a 720p need, or maybe we're going to post this image on our blog. Now, if I was going to post it on my blog and it was about the castle itself, I may want to get in a little tighter. Let's turn on proportional uh, cropping uh, for the canvas size, and let's set this to something like 600. And look at how tiny that is. Now I can get right in there, and I'm not changing the resolution like i'm not changing the um dots per inch of the image so now if i zoom in that's the that's the full resolution of that original image it's just that i've Mm -hmm. cropped out the sides so see that very cool it's the same it's just i've cropped out the sides if however i want to keep the 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 entire scale like i can see all the stuff around i can see the hill i can use image scaling instead so image now that i've already cropped it scale image and this is where we do need to make absolutely sure that we have this proportional linking enabled enabled yeah so if i do uh let's say i do 700 there it automatically changes the height to 394 which is 16 over 9 to 700 so if i didn't have that set watch what's going to happen and you may have this happen if you forget to enable this link here let's change this to 600 and then hit scale notice it left the height as 1080 so now my castle is going to go really <laughs> weird. Yep. It's gone squishy. So that's why proportional linking is, is really important between the height and width if you are scaling. You don't need to do that if you're cropping. So now if I change this to 700, it's going to create a smaller image. I've linked that together. 394 is my width, or my height, pardon me. 700 is my width. So now it's the same picture, only smaller. Yeah, it's 16 over 9, which is the you know the widescreen of my display but it's smaller now so perfect for uploading to my blog or whatever else if i go that is the full size of the image as you see it on the screen right now so as i mentioned if i wanted to i could crop without using proportional um, scaling let's say i need a perfect square so now we've got 700 by 394 i could go 394 by 394 and now i can move around that image just like this this is again image canvas size okay so we found that with Right-click, image, canvas size. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to create... Notice I've turned off the link so that it doesn't change the height automatically. I've changed this to be exactly the same as the height. And I've dragged this to move it around. And now I'm going to get this nice little thumbnail that is a perfect square. Nice. Okay, so I could, there are good use cases for that. So that's really quickly, um, you know, a couple of little tips for you. Tricks to um, quick image editing. 
But the one final thing that you need to be able to do is now save your image. We need to use it online. We need yes. to be able to actually put it online. And it can be a little bit daunting and confusing if we're not familiar with the tools at hand. Typically, we're used to saying, save as. And if I do that, um, it's going to default to this XCF format. And XCF is the GIMP format, and it is like a, P, a PDF PSD. Okay. Photoshop document. Um, so it contains the layers and everything else. It's not something that you would upload to a website, like a JPEG. Right. It, right. And is that because it would just wouldn't be readable as it... It's so that you can then use that file and edit again. Oh, okay. So let's say I put some text over top of it. By saving it as an XCF, so save as, now I can go back and change the text without okay. having to redo all the cropping. Right. So it can be very, very handy, and it's a good way to keep master files and things like that, but it's not ideal for what we need here, which is to upload a square image to our blog. So instead, I'm going to go File, and we're going to go Export As. Be careful not to click Overwrite, because if this is in, like a family image that you've just cropped and changed, you want to leave the original image as it is and save a second copy. That's all kind of part of our backup uh, ability. So now I'm going to call this um, you know, square... If I could spell, that would help. Squarecastleimage.jpg. It's important that I specify the extension. JPEG is um, something that's going to be compatible with web. So it defaulted to a particular compression or quality. 100 means this is going to be the best quality that this image could possibly be. It's also going to be big. Right. How big it's at 394 by 394, it's a pretty small image, but we can actually shrink this down quite a bit. So let's show an image preview. And that preview is actually going to tell us the size of that image. So see this? 199.5 kilobytes. Now if I go down to 99%, it just dropped to 168. 98 is 135. What would so you say is an adequate size for a picture? Well, it depends on what you're doing with it and how big the image is this way, like scale-wise. Okay. If it's for print, you want to have really good quality, like go with 98% and just let and it be a big file. And just let it roll. But when it comes to the web, you want to find that happy medium. If you're emailing photos to family and things like that, you want to find that happy medium for, hey, it's a pretty small file. It's going to email real quick, and they're not going to be annoyed that you know they just got this on their LTE internet and they're having to pay <laughs> A hundred dollars for the download. Dollars. Yeah. So what is that? What is that happy? That's the question. What's the happy medium? And I'm asking mm -hmm. as a recently married person who has all these really big, fancy sure. pictures. You want to send them. If I want to send them to somebody, what size should they be? Uh, well, it, again, depends on the scale. Nobody's printing them. But, so in this particular <laughs> case, it, I, I don't think it's a number. It's not like oh. a, how many kilobytes, how many megabytes. Obviously, email is limited to like, you know, if you go over five megabytes, some email servers will still bounce that back. 25 is pretty normal, but okay. if you go over that, it's probably going to bounce, and it's going to take a little bit of time. It's going to annoy people. Okay. Um, but what we want to do is not find the file size, per se. We want to find that happy medium of, hey, I can't tell the difference in this preview window between, let's see where I start to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see the difference. It's starting to go a little bit grainy. I'm going to go up to 70. So 70 is 42.3 kilobytes. And I can't tell the difference between 70 quality and 100 quality. 100 quality is 199.5 kilobytes. So if you can tell the difference between them, good on you. I can't tell. 
So now I'm happy with 70% quality. So keep in mind, the lower the quality, the more the compression. Okay? The worse the quality. Right. See that? I can see that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but up at uh, about 70, now even 39 is looking pretty good. But I can see a difference between that and 100. So if I go back up to 70, it looks real good. It's perfect. It's 42.3. I'm going to hit export. And now I've got a copy on my desktop of that image. And there it is. Beautiful. So now I've got the perfect scale, the perfect shape, and the perfect file size for that image. And that's all done using a free program called the GNU Image Manipulation Program. Now these are really, really basic kind of get, let's get into image editing steps. Right. To show you that, hey, you know, this can be used to scale your photos and, and resize them and put the, get them ready for your website or whatever else you want to do, po posting them on Facebook. If you're you might want to make them a square for Facebook. Jumping into this and want to download this super awesome program, we have lots of past episodes. We sure do. Um, you can find a lot of good resources on our website, category5.tv. I guess just click on search and type in GIMP. GIMP. There's like yeah. a plethora of GIMP tutorials. It's incredible. Robbie knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so check it out. GIMP.org is the website uh, where you can download it for free. Uh, if you are on Linux, you can get it in your repositories. Just do an apt install GIMP or however you love to install your packages. Just All right, like you, you ready to hit the newsroom? Oh, just like that. Just like that. Just like I that. I told you this is going to be flying along. I hope you all are having fun. I feel like that it is actually flying along. I know, I know. This is a fast hour. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let me just take a quick sip. Of my oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. Talk amongst yourselves. I didn't realize, and I feel... Oh, I know. It's a transition. <laughs> to transition adequately. Now I'm the decoration. Serious face. Yeah. Notice that I notice, um, speaking of that, I'm noticing. <laughs> speaking of your face, Asha, what is it doing? No, no. What's wrong with Look face? at my face. You see that with this camera, this is the Panasonic. Uh, the model is HCWXF991. I am noticing a difference on my baldness um, with this camera versus the so AX53 that we looked at last week. Okay, like the glare is that? Yeah, and I had to I had to manually adjust this camera because it was phasing in and out its exposure. Right. That's probably this guy's fault, um, like the shine. Um, but um, so I actually was able to figure out how to manually set the exposure on this camera, which works pretty good. It looks That's like worth noting. It looks mm -hmm. fine to me. Yeah. Cool. What do you guys think? <laughs> what do you think no, that's that's my ban shine. my banter is like about the the camera and my forehead. Shiny happy people, Robbie <laughs> Ferguson. <laughs> Here are the stories we're covering this week in the Category Five TV newsroom. The surveillance camera network in the U.S. Capitol was hijacked by Romanian ransomware, and charges have been filed against a pair that were arrested abroad. Nissan Canada's vehicle financing wing has been hacked, putting personal information on more than a million customers into the hands of miscreants. Tesla's Elon Musk has pledged to make a pickup truck as part of his future plans for the electric vehicle maker. Talk of long-range wireless charging has been around for some time, but we've yet to see a product that can charge devices from relatively long distances. Thanks to startup Energis, however, room-scale charging will soon be a reality and available to everyone. 
And Apple has changed the rules around how games on its app store will be using loot boxes. These stories are coming right up. Don't go anywhere. Whether you shop on ThinkGeek, GearBest, B&H Photo Video, eBay, or Amazon, or even if you want a free trial of Audible, you'll find the best deals and support the shows we produce by simply visiting the shopping sites you already frequent by using the links on our website. Visit category5.tv slash partners for the full and ever-growing list and help us create more free content like this show. Thank you for shopping with our partners, and thank you for watching. This is the Category5.tv newsroom, covering the week's top tech stories with a slight Linux bias. I'm Sasha Rickman, and here are the top stories we're following this week. The surveillance camera network in the U.S. Capitol was hijacked by Romanian ransomware, and charges have been filed against a pair that were arrested abroad. Two of the five unnamed individuals cuffed this month in Romania on suspicion of spreading ransomware earlier this year are now facing U.S. computer crime charges for their alleged role in taking over 123 of 187 networked computers, computers that control Washington, D.C.'s CCTV cameras. According to Europol, which led the arrests this week, two of those arrested are suspected of attacking American computer systems using the server ransomware. In an affidavit obtained by CNN, unsealed by mistake and then resealed, Secret Service agent James Graham laid out the, the basis for the U.S. Department of Justice's computer fraud case against two Romanian nationals. A Justice Department spokesperson confirmed the linkage of the arrests and the U.S. court filing. The spokesperson said, These are separate but related investigations and the people you name are among those arrested by Europol. Graham described how around January 9, 2017 and January 12, 2017, the pair, as part of an alleged ransomware scheme, took control of the networked Windows computers used by the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police to run their traffic cameras. On January 12th, having recognized that some of the cameras were offline, D.C. Police IT staff and a Secret Service agent used remote desktop software to connect to one of the servers controlling the cameras. They watched as the device with a number of open desktop windows was running unexpected software. The IT administrator subsequently blocked network access for the compromised device, which was then removed along with two other computers for forensic analysis. Investigators determined that two ransomware variants, Cerber and Dharma, had been installed on the computers. They also found a text file, USA.txt, that contained 179,616 email addresses being used to spam intended ransomware victims. A text file with the same checksum was subsequently found in an email account associated with one of the defendants. One of those email addresses stood out to the investigators and they were able to obtain access to its records from Google. Within that, they found evidence to show that the two arrested were renting access to Cerber in order to infect victims, uh, scramble their files, extort money from them to, rest uh, to restore the data. The Europol release calls this crime as a service. The various email accounts and IP addresses and cross-references with fraud databases provided enough details to ask Romanian officials for further digital data linked to the defendants. Hmm. So... That's crazy. 
I just I feel like the CCTVs for Washington D.C. the traffic like it controls the traffic lights. Right? I wonder how purposeful it was though that they hit that network. Like ransomware is typically very random and in its targets. Right. And I think that's where we fall into thinking, oh, well, nobody would ever attack me. Well, ran- ransomware, which is one of the worst threats that we're up against right now, is not a targeted attack. Typically, it goes out by, well, 179,000 email addresses that they're just spamming. Right. So are they all targeted? Well, technically, they're on the list, but how did they get on that list? They're not necessarily specifically targeted. Right. But somehow See, they were able to compromise these servers, so that leads to thinking, okay, something's not being said. Right. About infrastructural security. It's Windows, right? It is Windows. And it had a remote desktop installed. So were they monitoring? Here's the thing. We've got remote desktop on our computers. If you're running Windows, it allows you to connect to your computer from home. Right. At the office and so on, right? So if someone was whacking away at your password, trying to guess the password, how would you know? Right. Yeah, would would not. You wouldn't. Um, So what kind of security mechanisms are in place by the government and the police to protect against that kind of attack? Typically, you know, if you've guessed the password five times and it's wrong, lock lock the IP address out. Here's a case where probably what they're not telling us, okay, yeah, blame it on ransomware, blame it on this, and sure, they did something bad, but there's an open port called Remote Desktop. They've been whacking away at it. They found the password. They remoted into the desktop and launched a bunch of mm-hmm. programs, installed the ransomware manually. Right. This was not an accidental, whoops, somebody ran the program on our traffic cameras. No, this is somebody remoted into the traffic cameras that you had wide installed. open to the world. Right. Whoops. Oopsie. What is Cerber and what is Dharma? Are those... Uh, two different variants of ransomware. So Dharma, um, I think Dharma is the older of the two, but okay. they're all very current. Like this, Dharma was um, uh, August, I believe, okay. was when it hit. Um, Dharma being, um, oh, it's hard. They all kind of run together at this point. It was so much easier when there was CryptoLocker and a couple of variants. Right. Um, th- what's neat about Cerber, or what's different about Cerber, is that it's being sold as a service, as they said, in this accidentally open document, which was promptly sealed after we obviously okay. read it and got all the information. Um, but it, it's sold. So some it's hackers have created this. as a service. Yeah, and, they, yeah, and are now selling it, saying, hey, Sasha, would you like to run your own ransomware scheme? Here's the program. Wow, you pay yes. for this. And then you make the money off of the ransomware. Right. And that's what Cerber does. Now, Dharma is a different variant of ransomware. I'm not too sure on that one how it differs or they're all just different variants right yeah. but um, dharma in particular if i recall correctly is one that it does not like wanna cry was devastating because it took advantage of exploits in microsoft windows in order to propagate right so it infected it spread dharma mm-hmm. requires the user to run it okay so if you get a Dharma infection, you have run something malicious. You've gone to a website that's tried fault. to throw you something and you said yes to the wrong question. Oops. But in this case, the malicious users themselves remoted into the computer and installed Dharma. Right. That's the impression that I get. I feel like if I was in charge of the CCTVs and the traffic lights in any city at all, I would not use it for any malicious things. I would just always make it green lights for me. 
Perfect. <laughs> it's like it, it senses your geolocation data from your something, phone. Yeah, something just, where it's like yeah, green light. Absolutely. In fact, it would be the opposite of ransomware. I'd just be like, pay me and I'll make, this, I'll make the light screen for Perfect. you. Perfect. It'd be good. It makes absolute sense, Sasha. Yeah, that's right. This is why we don't give you any power. That's why I read a script. <laughs> <laughs> Nissan Canada's vehicle financing wing has been hacked, putting personal information on more than a million customers into the hands of miscreants. In an email to Nissan car buyers, Nissan Canada admitted its computer systems were compromised with unauthorized persons gaining access to the personal information of some customers that have financed their vehicles through Nissan Canada Finance or Infinity Financial Services Canada. The note added, we apologize for any frustration and anxiety this may have caused our customers, and we thank you for your patience and support as we work through this issue. Wow. Yeah, nice. A similar message is now on the automaker's website. According to Nissan Canada, the exposed data includes at least customers' names, addresses, vehicle makes and models, vehicle identification numbers, credit scores, loan amounts, and monthly payment figures. Nissan Canada admitted it discovered on Monday, December 11th that it had been hacked and alerted the world 10 days later. No personal banking information, such as card numbers, were taken, we're told. However, the automaker is offering 12 months of free credit monitoring to its customers just in case the scumbags do exploit the exposed records. So, A, 12 months is not enough because the miscreants could definitely strike in the 13th month. Also, I don't need a credit card number if I were to be this person. Really? Like, would you really need the credit card number to uh, steal somebody's identity? No. Yeah, right. Really? Oh, I think we fall into thinking, hey, if someone gets my credit card number, they can go shopping and get into my accounts. But if I have... true. If I have the payment amount... Right of the right, and I can just assume which and bank personal you're using. information. Personal information. Yeah. Then when I call the bank and say, "Hey, I forgot my password," and they'll say, "Well, can you tell me a little bit about your bank account?" Yeah, I know that on the fifteenth of the month, one hundred ninety-two dollars and seventeen cents comes out. They'd be like, "Oh, mm-hmm. obviously you exactly. are Sasha." <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. But they're the hacker. They're the person who stole the yeah. information. And if I'm not sure which bank you deal with, well, guess what? I've got your phone number. Boop, 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 boop. Hi, Sasha. This is Robbie calling from TD Canada Trust. Oh. Uh, we were looking at your account. Oh, oh, you don't deal with TD Canada Trust? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I must have the wrong number. Hi, Sasha. This is Robbie calling from CIBC. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Somebody has, you know, oh, oh, yeah. So we're listening for flags. Oh, that's your bank. Okay. Excellent. Right? 10 days. 10 days they knew well, about this before they alerted anybody. Now, here's the thing. Why wouldn't they just say, as soon as they found out, hey, there's a problem? What were they trying to figure out in the background? How much information was taken? Well, what they- we can only speculate, right? <sighs> but like anything that is shrouded in bureaucracy and lawyers, right? what do they need to do? They need to confirm data before they can release it. We're not going to just announce randomly, hey, we've been compromised, yeah, I just feel... It's probably best and it, to take 10 days. I don't think that's unreasonable. I don't love it. No, but right? if we now know exactly what's been taken, 
probably have a little bit of information for the FBI to know or whoever, I guess here in Canada, it would be a different agency. But you, you know what I mean? Like they need to collect enough information to one, make sure that the person doesn't still have access to that data in that they're actively copying data at that time. Right. They need to lock it down. Do you think 12 months is enough? To for offer insurance protection? <laughs> yes. Well, it gives you enough time to change all your cards, change your name, move to a different country. and Go into the witness protection program. <laughs> kind of. It's, I, this information could be used for identity theft and right. other things. So it is, it is more serious than they let on. And couldn't they have just stored the information in a far more secure way? Like I, This reminds me of the story just where like a hard drive was stolen yeah. out of a room. Mm-hmm. I feel like why is any of that information not, you know... Encrypted in- with government-grade encryption. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't always get it. it's always hindsight, right? You were always looking back and saying, oh, I really should have had a backup of those files, or I really should have... Well, and companies are just as guilty because companies are run by people. Right. At least for now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, speaking of machines taking over the world, Tesla's Elon Musk has pledged to make a pickup truck as part of the future plans for the electric vehicle maker. Elon Musk made a promise on Twitter after asking his followers for suggestions about how the firm could improve. He said the open back truck would follow the Model Y, a yet-to-be-detailed car, which is expected to be based on its Model 3 sedan. But experts note Tesla has suffered repeated delivery delays. That has led to some to question whether the loss-making company can meet its existing commitments, which also include a transport truck and a sports car. Musk has also made several promises about new features that Tesla intends to add to its existing vehicles, including intelligent windshield wipers. Demand for pickup trucks has risen over the past year despite a drop in demand for other types of light vehicles. Musk had previously hinted at his plans for a pickup when an image showing an obscured pickup was briefly shown being carried on the back of its semi-truck at the press conference announcing it in November. In his tweets, Musk said the vehicle would would likely be slightly bigger than Ford's best-selling F-150 pickup to allow it to contain an unspecified game-changing feature. Hmm. Wonder what that means, a game-changing feature. Wow, that kind of leaves it wide open. Now, Twitter was abuzz, and one particular tweet actually caught Elon Musk's attention and got him to reply. MC Flash Tube said, here's a list of the things I think that could be. First of all, a rain sensor, all eight cameras as a dash cam. Ooh. Ooh. Ambient light settings for brightness, footwell front and rear seats. Uh, sign recognition for the automation system. Oh, That would that's be cool. Good. Music quieter when you open all the doors. That's a good idea, too, actually. That's interesting. And finally, his greatest suggestion, which has caused Twitter to erupt, is Tesla disco mode. Ambient lighting that moves to the music beat with an on and off brightness. I don't hate any of those ideas. (laughs) Elon said something like, uh, oh, I love all the first ideas. We're going to say that, yeah, those are probably possibilities. But that last one, not too sure. Not so much. Not too I like the idea of intelligent windshield wipers. And I remember talking about that before. But of late, driving in pretty much any city, but especially Barrie, evidently, I would like... Intelligent indicators. 
I think intelligent other drivers would also help. Right. This is where I think robots <laughs> indicators? should take How, Okay, so define the indicators, because your answer was serious. Mine was a joke. Although, I will say <laughs> that robots driving cars would be better than humans driving well, cars. Well, they have autonomous features. Exactly. So what, what would the... So the problem I, I have is people do not indicate their intentions when they're driving. Right. Right? Or they so, slow down almost to a stop before turning on the blinker that says, I'm actually turning. Exactly. Yeah, or they turn without... Yeah, or they turn without indicating mm-hmm. or they change lanes without indicating or they'll just indicate while they're changing lanes that's a big pet peeve of mine i know all of our viewers are just going yeah that so, bugs me too because none of our viewers would do something like that can there no never could there <laughs> not be some sort of intelligence in the car because clearly it's not <laughs> it's called driving the it. driver no no we need be. other intelligence okay. in the car that yeah. somehow will sense <laughs> the autonomous uh, robot voice over the intercom is like uh you didn't signal yeah is there something it's like be sasha's voice when you turn without signaling you get a jolt or something <laughs> it shocks you i just <laughs> two electrodes and the thing is we all know i sold my i don't even have a car i am no longer a driver i ride my bike and still it bothers me people don't indicate yes that's it's even how, more dangerous it's more now. dangerous yeah Please indicate. Elon Musk, please make your extra feature an indicator. I don't Something care about the like windshield. So Safety much. features are okay. key. I think that's what it boils down to. Exactly. Talk of long range wireless charging has been around for some time, but we've yet to see a product that can charge devices from relatively long distances. Thanks to startup Energist, however, room scale charging will soon be a reality and available to everyone. The San Jose based company announced that the Federal Commission's Communication, or the FCC, has just certified its Watt Up midfield transmitter, which converts electricity into radio waves and beams the power to any device fit with a receiver up to three feet away. Wireless chargers have been around for several years, but most of them require a device to be in direct contact with the station. A startup called Pi recently released what it called the first ever contactless wireless charging product, which uses the same resident induction tech as Qi, although its range is limited to one foot. Energis's power at a distance system boasts a greater distance than Pi and is still able to charge multiple devices at once. Additionally, the WattUp ecosystem allows receivers and transmitters made by different manufacturers to work together. In addition to the midfield transmitters, the company is also working on far field transmitters that have a greater range and allow multiple transmitters to be linked together to cover large spaces. There's also the near field transmitter, a low power solution that can be embedded into laptops, tablets, consoles, and more. There are no watt op devices available to consumers yet, but Energis will be showing off the technology at CES in a couple of weeks. Hmm, that's cool. I love this. So the CES is the Consumer Electronics Show. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which I had to look up because I was interested in it. Turns out that it has like this big long history. The turns consumer, out, oh yeah. Turns out that's every been January for, it's a big deal. It's this a is, huge big this deal. This is where all the, the manufacturers go to show off the newest stuff. Right. Yeah. Converting electricity into radio waves. Is that is that something that 
is easy? Like, what would that mean? Well, you know, this pe- is a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like being able to beam that energy is, like, how do you do that safely without creating microwaves and things like and that? And disrupting people's pacemakers or, yeah, like, or cochlear an, yeah, implants or something. Causing like. health issues. And so that's something that they obviously would have addressed, considering they've got FCC approval. Um, but... Um, the technique itself is typically just being able to di- direct the energy through a diode that would, you know, transmit the energy to a receiver. But I guess that receiver would be your phone or right. your smartwatch or something. But uh, presumably, I could be sitting in a waiting room using my smartphone, and that waiting room would be charging my phone. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about it, radio waves. Like, I'm not. I'm not as scared of radio waves. I feel like they're everywhere. They're they are. everywhere. They that's are why inside when you us. Turn on your radio. You can hear it because you're just capturing the radio waves that are already here. I have a metal right? filling in the back here, and it's all the time. It's yeah. Like short wave. See? Yeah. Okay, so here's a funny little story about this story. Is I was reading it earlier, mm. um, and... I charge my phone with Qi charging, like, okay. right? Yeah. And I love it. But I was talking about this, and I was like, oh, this is so much better than my thing. <laughs> so, you mean I can actually use it and not have to have it sitting, sitting on the on desk? Yeah. What's funny is that my lamp got mad at me. And my chi wouldn't work for like five minutes. No afterwards. way! Oh, I had you the conversation, and I was like, lamp. "Dave, look at this. It's like not registering my phone anymore." It got <laughs> so mad at me. It has AI. <laughs> so wow. there you go. That's that's like, really creepy. Clearly, session. it's random. I turned it off, turned it on again, and it was fine. That's always the answer. But- Always the answer. There you go. You got one more? I do. All right. Apple has changed the rules around how games on its app store will be using loot boxes. These boxes are random rewards for gameplay and often give players benefits and power-ups that can be used in games. In a change to its developer guidelines, Apple said games must now let players know the odds of getting particular items in the boxes. Loot boxes have been controversial for some time with experts saying they amount to a covert lottery. In the updated guidelines, Apple said any in-game mechanism that rewards players with randomized virtual items must list the odds of receiving each type of item. In addition, it said customers must be informed of these odds before they buy the boxes or rewards. Many games offer extras to players that can change the appearance of the game, introduce new characters, or bestow power-ups that help people as they play. Some titles let people buy loot boxes with in-game funds they generate by playing or by spending real money to purchase the game's virtual cash. The controversy over the crates was thrown into sharp focus last month with the release of the Star Wars Battlefront 2 game, which used them extensively. U.S. politicians called for greater regulation of games that use loot boxes and crates. One politician saying that a Battlefront, that Battlefront 2 was Star Wars-themed online casino. The backlash led to Electronic Arts, the publisher of the Battlefront 2, to rework it to remove its reliance on the random reward system. In the UK, there have been calls for games that use the loot system to be regulated just like other lotteries. The UK's Gambling Commission said the boxes did not come under its control because the rewards they handed out were only usable in the game. (laughs) Um, That, I would say, is my main point. 
It's a game, and the rewards are in the game. It's not a casino. It's not real money. I mean, it is real money, I guess, if you're spending your real money on sure. doing it. Those but. who do. But I think about my kids using a game that is, in all essences, an online casino. Right. And they're, you know, being trained to gamble. So there's, there's kind of two sides to it. As adults, we can, we can differentiate. We can say, right, well, that's, well, it's yeah. a game. And, hey, you know, I could rent a movie for five bucks or I can deposit five bucks into this game and, and play it for a while. Well, it is gambling. Right, but are putting the odds on it going to help that decision at all? That's a weird thing, eh? Yeah, I that's don't think... That's the solution? I, I feel like, mm, no. Hey, you're gambling. We're going to prove it by giving, showing you what showing your odds you are. Showing you the odds of getting that, Which you treats know, it like a lottery. Epic stuff mm-hmm. yeah i don't yeah. i don't love that politicians are discussing this sure. i feel like this is there not are the more thing important things to be talking about although i will tell you i did last christmas give dave a treasure box for the house that i just put randomized loot into <laughs> because i love the idea of these chests so much <laughs> that we actually have a real one in our house and sometimes it nice. has nothing in it the chances are actually pretty good. It has nothing in it. And sometimes it has, like, a bag of potato chips. Sometimes it has a Nintendo Switch. It has, like... Ooh. Like, it's very randomized, but the odds are pretty low there's ever anything more than a love note in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fun. That's fun. So, there we go. Big thanks to Roy W. Nash and our community of viewers for submitting stories to us this week. Thanks for watching the Category5.tv newsroom. Don't forget to like and subscribe for all your tech news with a slight Linux bias. And for more free content, be sure to check out our website. From the Category5.tv newsroom, I'm Sasha Rickman. Thank you, Sasha. This is, ca- this is Category 5 Technology TV. See what happens if I stop talking for five minutes and start to stumble on my own tongue. Uh, I've ho- I hope that you've had fun tonight. It's been nice having you back here. Uh, of course, you know, a lot of people still on holidays, uh, even here yes. at the studio. It's just Sasha and I tonight. Jeff is away. Uh, but uh, we hope that you've had a nice holiday so far and uh, wishing you a very happy new year. We're looking forward to seeing you again next week. Yes, have a great week. The end of a great year. Has been a great year, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I hope that yours has been wonderful. And uh, here's to 2018 being the best it could possibly be. Yes. It's going to be amazing. Of course it is. I can't wait to have you interacting with us and getting to know you throughout the year. All right. That's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. See you guys. Bye.